0: Section Thirty of England since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Fifteen, The Indian Mutiny, eighteen fifty-six to eighteen fifty-eight, Part Two. Next to Delhi, Lucknow was the most important center of the mutiny. It was indeed natural that the capital of Oud should be the focus of unrest. In March, Sir Henry Lawrence had been appointed resident. He clearly foresaw the coming storm and did all he could to put Lucknow in a condition of defense, but the task was not easy. He had 700 British soldiers under his command and 16,000 native troops. On May 30th, the storm burst, five of the native regiments broke out, set fire to the cantonments and murdered their officers under circumstances of exceptional treachery the outbreak at lucknow gave the signal for revolt to every station throughout the old kingdom of oud by the middle of june every regiment in the province was in a state of mutiny as soon as Kanpur surrendered the mutineers moved on lucknow on June 30th, Lawrence, with a little force, marched out to meet more than 6,000 rebels at Chinhat, a few miles outside the city. His native gunners cut the traces of their horses, threw the guns into a ditch, and Lawrence was compelled to retreat with heavy loss. He could no longer hold the city, and on July 1st he withdrew his little garrison into the residency. Within the residency were now confined 927 Englishmen, soldiers and civilians, 765 native troops, and 130 women and children. On July 2nd, the residency was invested, and two days later the garrison suffered an irreparable loss, Lawrence being killed by a bursting shell the command devolved on brigadier ingalls and for eighty-seven days he sustained the siege with unflinching courage and marvellous resource again and again the rebels assaulted the residency again and again the assaults were repelled all through the burning summer the sufferings of the besieged were intense cholera, smallpox, and fever wrought deadly havoc upon a garrison confined within a narrow space and weakened by lack of food and ceaseless toil. Again and again the garrison learnt that relief was at hand, only to be disappointed. But at last, on September 24th, the news reached them that Havelock had arrived. Ever since the recapture of Kanpur. Havelock had been trying, with a force miserably inadequate, to cut his way through the rebels to Lucknow. So far, however, he had failed. Immediately on arriving in India, Sir Colin Campbell, the new commander-in-chief, promised him reinforcements, but at the same time announced, to Havelock's bitter chagrin, that the command should be given to Sir James Outram. On September 15th, Outram joined Havelock at Kanpur, but with a chivalry rare even in the annals of the most chivalrous service in the world, he refused to supersede his comrade until the work for which he had so long and so splendidly labored should have been accomplished. The major-general Outram, in gratitude for and admiration of the brilliant deeds and arms achieved by General Havelock and his gallant troops, will cheerfully waive his rank on the occasion and will accompany the force to Lucknow in his civil capacity as chief commissioner of Aud, tendering his military services to General Havelock as a volunteer. So ran the general order of September 16th. Three days later Havelock commenced his march at the head of three thousand men. Barely sufficient but splendidly handled, they won their way through, and after two days continuous fighting on the outskirts of the city, Havelock joined hands with Ingalls on September 25th. But the relief had cost him seven hundred men, including General Neel. He was not strong enough to bring out the garrison with safety, and in his turn, therefore, Havelock found himself besieged in the residency. When Sir Colin Campbell reached India in August to take over the supreme command, the prospects for his countrymen looked black indeed. Delhi was untaken, Lucknow unrelieved, Kanpur doubtfully held by Havelock. For two months, Campbell was busily employed in collecting men and transports and sending them to the front. He left Calcutta himself on October 27th and reached Kanpur on November 3rd. On the 9th, he set out for the relief of Lucknow. He attacked the city with 5,000 men on the 14th, and after a series of difficult but brilliant actions, he joined hands with Outram and Havelock on the 17th. By the 22nd, Campbell had withdrawn the garrison in safety, but the luster of a great military achievement was dimmed by the death in the palace of the Alambaugh of the gallant Havelock, November 24th. Leaving Outram to hold that strongly fortified post, Campbell then hurried back to Kanpur. He was only just in time to avert disaster. During his absence, a large body of mutineers from the Maratha state of Gwalior had joined hands with the forces led by two of the most formidable opponents we had ever to encounter in the mutiny war. The one was Tantia Topi, the brilliant lieutenant of Nana Sahib, the other was the Rani of Jansi, the Joan of Arc of the Hindu mutineers. The rebels attacked Kanpur in force, and General Wyndham, whom Sir Colin had left in command, was driven back into his entrenchments. Urgent messages were dispatched to the commander in chief. Impeded though he was by the sick and wounded rescued from Lucknow, the latter marched with all possible speed. On December 5th, he sent off the convoy to Allalabad, and on the 6th, he attacked the rebels in Kanpur and smote them hip and thigh. Kanpur was saved, and the mutineers, flying before the vigorous pursuit of Sir Hope Grant, were dispersed far and wide over Kanpur, as over Delhi, the British flag once more waved, never again to be lowered. But Lucknow was still untaken. The governor-general urged the importance of retaking Lucknow with all possible speed, and thus dealing an effective blow at the growing disaffection in Oud. Sir Colin retorted that the remnant of the cold season was insufficient for so great a task, and proposed instead an expedition for the reduction of Rohilkhand. On military grounds, there was much to be said in favor of Sir Colin's view. Lord Canning, however, was unquestionably right in insisting that political considerations pointed to the paramount necessity of reasserting British authority in Oud. The commander-in-chief loyally gave way, and during the next three months, the mutineers were gradually driven in upon Lucknow. Jang Bahadur, the loyal Prime Minister of Nepal, advanced from the north at the head of nine thousand Gurkhas. General Franks drove in the rebels from the east, while Sir Colin himself, at the head of the finest British army which had ever been seen in India, swept up the whole country to the south and west of the city. Rejoining Outram at the Alamba, he fought a series of severe engagements, and at last, on March twenty-first, eighteen fifty-eight lucknow finally surrendered the recapture of lucknow dealt a death-blow to any hope of victory which might still be entertained by the mutineers and it ought to have ended the war that it failed to do so was due primarily to the apathy which allowed a huge body of mutineers to escape with their trusted leaders from lucknow and secondly to the unfortunate effect produced upon the talukdars or chief landowners of oud by the issue of Lord Canning's proclamation. The terms of this famous proclamation aroused acute controversy both in India and at home. Issued on the morrow of the recapture of Lucknow, it declared that all the chiefs, with six exceptions, having been guilty of rebellion against the queen, had forfeited all their proprietary rights, that if they made instant submission their lives and honor should be safe, provided that their hands were not stained with english blood murderously shed but that for any further privileges they must throw themselves upon the justice and mercy of the british government intended by canning as a conditional offer of clemency it was interpreted in owd as a decree of confiscation sir james outram and john lawrence to say nothing of lord ellenborough now president of the board of control regarded the proclamation as a grave error lawrence would have offered an amnesty to all who had not been guilty of murder no mutineer he wrote ever surrenders for directly he is caught he is shot or hanged the truth of his words were proved to the hilt during the next few months rohillconde was reduced to submission by the end of may but not until january eighteen fifty nine. Was the last of the organized force of the rebels finally dispersed? In Oud and in Oud alone did the mutiny assume something of the character of a national insurrection, and there can be no question that this was due in large measure to the unfortunate terms of Lord Canning's proclamation. The chiefs believed, erroneously but not unnaturally, that they had little to gain by submission and everything to fear. Consequently, they waged for months a guerrilla war, which caused infinite embarrassment to the British forces and their commanders, and yielded them little credit. While Sir Colin Campbell was busy in Rohilkhand, Bahar, and Oud, Sir Hugh Rose, afterwards Lord Strathnairn, was gradually reducing the central provinces to obedience. That the trouble was virtually confined to these provinces, and did not extend to the Bombay presidency, was due in the main to the firm and prudent statesmanship of the governor, Lord Alphinstone, and of George Barclay, Seton Carr, the political officer in charge of the southern Maratha country. The central provinces, the fruit of Dalhousie's doctrine of lapse, were less amenable to control, and their temper gave cause for much anxiety to the government. On December 16, 1857, Sir Hugh Rose arrived at Indore to take up his command, and during the next six months he gradually reduced the central provinces. Jansy was the center of insurrection. Its leaders were Tantia Topi and the Rani of Jansy. Outside Jansy, Sir Hugh won a brilliant victory over Tantia Topi at Betois, April 1, 1858. Two days later he captured Jansy itself, the stronghold of the Rani, and on May 22nd the great fortress of Kalpi. The intrepid Rani then got possession of Gwalior and induced its inhabitants to proclaim the Nana Sahib as Peshwa. On June seventeenth, however, the Rani was killed at the head of her troops, and on the 19th Gwalior was taken by Sir Hugh Rose. But as in Aud, so also in the central provinces, the capture of the fortresses was followed by a prolonged period of guerrilla warfare. For nine months, Tantia Topi successfully eluded the British pursuit, doubling backwards and forwards with baffling rapidity, until at length, in April of 1859, he was betrayed to his pursuers, and after due trial was executed, April 18, 1859. With Tantia Topi's capture and death, the long-drawn tragedy ends. Before the sword was actually sheathed, a change of momentous consequence was announced to the peoples of India. It was generally recognized that the rule of the company could not survive the mutiny. Pitt's dual system, established as a makeshift in 1784, had worked unexpectedly well for nearly three-quarters of a century, but the theory was illogical and the machinery was cumbrous. The time had clearly come, when the Crown must assume direct and formal responsibility for the government of the great empire which had been gradually built up by the representatives of a commercial company. Accordingly, a bill framed on a series of resolutions adopted by the House of Commons was passed by both houses and received the royal assent on August 2, 1858. Under this act, the powers and territories of the East India Company were transferred to the Queen, and the actual administration of India was committed to a Secretary of State, assisted by the Council of India. This council, to be carefully distinguished from that of the Viceroy, is no phantom board. It has consisted from the first of fifteen members appointed by the Secretary of State. Nine of them must have recently served and resided for ten years in India, and all are paid. The board meets weekly and controls in a large measure the action of the Secretary of State. The transference of authority effected by this act was formally announced to the peoples of India on November 1, 1858. The terms of the proclamation were carefully revised by the Queen, who from first to last had taken the closest and keenest interest in the progress of events in India. With the original draft of Lord Stanley, who as President of the Board of Control became the first Secretary of State, she was far from satisfied. She wrote, therefore, to Lord Darby, asking him to write it himself in his excellent language, bearing in mind that it is a female sovereign who speaks to more than one hundred million of Eastern people on assuming the direct government over them after a bloody civil war, giving them pledges which her future reign is to redeem, and explaining the principles of her government. Such a document should breathe feelings of generosity, benevolence, and religious feeling, pointing out the privileges which the Indians will receive in being placed on an equality with the subjects of the British crown, and the prosperity following in the train of civilization. The Queen's wishes were respected and with admirable results. More particularly were her personal views revealed in the passage with reference to religion. Firmly relying, said Her Majesty, on the truth of Christianity, and acknowledging with gratitude the solace of religion, we disclaim alike the right and the desire to impose our convictions on any of our subjects, it is our royal will and pleasure that no one shall in any wise suffer for his opinions or be disquieted by reason of his religious faith or observance. We will show to all alike the equal and impartial protection of the law, and we do strictly charge and enjoin those who may be in authority under us that they abstain from all interference with the religious belief or worship of any of our subjects under pain of our highest displeasure. It is our further will that, so far as may be, our subjects of whatever class or creed be fully and freely admitted to any offices the duties of which they may be qualified by their education, abilities, and integrity duly to discharge. Finally, the Queen declared that the aim of her government should be the benefit of all her subjects resident in India. In their prosperity will be our strength in their contentment our security and in their gratitude our best reward the proclamation produced the happiest effect in india and the queen's pleasure is reflected in a letter to the viceroy december second eighteen fifty eight it is she writes a source of great satisfaction and pride to her to feel herself in direct communication with that enormous empire which is so bright a jewel of her crown and which she would wish to see happy, contented, and peaceful. May the publication of her proclamation be the beginning of a new era, and may it draw a veil over the sad and bloody past. The Queen's hope was realized. The proclamation did inaugurate a new era, the direct government of India by the British crown. This fact was further emphasized by the state tour of the Prince of Wales, october eighteen seventy five to april eighteen seventy six and still more by the queen's assumption of the new title of empress of india the latter step was severely criticised at the time but it is now generally recognised to have been both opportune and appropriate it gave great satisfaction to the ageing monarch and it served to cement the bond between the Queen-Empress and the princes and peoples of the Indian Empire. To describe it as a piece of political charlatanry is merely to betray that lack of imaginative sympathy which cost us so dear at the time of the mutiny. Almost every other gift, both of character and intellect, had been bestowed in full measure upon Lord Dalhousie. Had this been added, the mutiny might never have occurred had the obverse gifts been lacking to his lieutenants and his successor the mutiny might well have been more serious than it was for tragic as were many of its incidents and critical as were many of its moments the mutiny was suppressed with relative ease that this was so was due to many contributory causes primarily to the unruffled coolness and intrepid courage of lord canning himself to his promptitude in diverting to India the British reinforcements on their way to China and his refusal to give way to panic, to the skill with which Lord Elphinstone restrained the restlessness of Bombay, to the combination of sternness and conciliation displayed by Lawrence and his colleagues in the Punjab, to the loyalty of the ruling princes, not one of whom espoused the cause of the mutineers, and to that of several powerful ministers, such as Jong Bahadur of Nepal and Salar Zhang of Hyderabad, to the splendid services rendered at more than one important juncture by Captain Peel and his naval brigade, and not least to the heroic fortitude of thousands of individual Englishmen known and unknown to fame. There were other factors in the suppression of the mutiny to which allusion has incidentally been made of these perhaps the most important was the lack of national unity in india thanks to this the sepoy mutiny never developed except in out and in a less degree in the central provinces into a national insurrection had it done so it could hardly have been quelled by the efforts however splendid and heroic of a handful of englishmen planted in the midst of a teeming population alien to themselves in tradition in race and in creed the most momentous result of the mutiny was to bring that teeming population for the first time into direct dependence upon the British crown. End of section 30.